Hi, my name is Anne McElhenney. And I'm Phelan McAleer. And welcome to the Anne and Phelan Scoop. Um, two weeks into the coronavirus pandemic. Or is, it, or is it three? I know we have three more weeks that are coming up. But actually, this is a very special edition. I want to get onto this quick because we have a lot of material we're doing today. Very special edition of the Anne and Phelan Scoop. We're joined today by Brett Stevens of the New York Times to talk. Well, originally when we, we organised this, it was to talk about his autobiography. About the, sorry, about the uh, Woody Allen's autobiography called Apropos of Nothing. But obviously, um, you know, history and time and events and news have uh, interrupted all of that. So we decided to do that and a bit more. Apropos of something. Apropos, <laughs> look at Phelan, awfully witty. Oh, very, very smart. I studied English at college. And we're also going to talk about the latest draconian laws that are, be, that are affecting us here in Southern California and about technology that's making life bearable. So those of you who don't know Zoom, we're going to talk about Zoom. And we're also going to tell a story. We're going to talk about Dr. Deborah Burks, who is reassuring not just for her medical expertise. And we're going to listen uh, to, or we're going to, sorry, we're going to read out some of your messages from YouTube. Um, and thank you very much for sending them and some, uh, some of your comments we really love the comments we really love the messages and the recipes and we pay attention to it and thank you for the the the, the commenter who pointed out that the daily wire had misspelled Anne's name and we're and then they misspelled it in the correction so we're now trying to get them to correct the correction but keep watching and keep pointing us out but we're going to start today with brett stevens yeah so He's a New York Times columnist. You'll love it. Uh, he's got so much to say about Woody Allen, so much to say about coronavirus, so much to say about pandemics, about, about his mother who fled the Nazis. And of course, as you probably know, he has a lot to say about President Trump. So let's hear that. And we're very pleased to be joined by Brett Stevens here. So many of you will know Brett. Um, let me introduce you. He's, he's a journalist, editor, columnist, has been working with the New York Times now for since about April 2017. Uh, before that, he worked for the Wall Street Journal as a as a foreign affairs columnist. Before that, he was the uh, editor of the Jerusalem Post when he was about fourteen or something like that. Um, I'm joking there, but he was I think the youngest editor of the Jerusalem Post. He's won a Pulitzer Prize, um, and. Has a has an interest. Uh, we're not, we're joined joined now by, to talk about the Woody Allen autobiography, but we can't go forward. I think without talking about his most recent column um, uh, about what your mother thinks of the pandemic. Yeah, and it was I, 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 a couple. Of, I just have a couple of questions about it, and then we're going to be urging all of our um, w listeners and watchers to to read the column in its entirety because it's really wonderful. And, it's called and it. In the emergency, it's called in the emergency room. Mom knows best. Yeah, um, uh, and I love. I love the first just, line it's it's like corrective. It's in the emergency. Mom knows best. Emergency. She also knows best. But uh, yes, yes, I love the first line where you where you go and you're delivering um, the groceries to her and you ask her how she is and she says she has a PhD in loneliness. I thought was a very one of the more striking lines of it. But one of the things I was going to ask you was, because I was reading the, the comments from the, uh, the readers of the New York Times, people really loved the column and people really loved your mother. Were you surprised by the reaction to, to your piece? Well, I was pleased with it because most readers of the New York Times uh, are uh, less sympathetic to my other columns. Um, I think I was mainly pleased with it because my mother... Uh, combed over the the comments and took special note of all the people who suggested that she take my place yes <laughs> as a regular columnist so i was able uh, to bring a little joy 
in uh, an otherwise fairly solitary existence. My mother um, is twice widowed. My father passed away uh, going on nine years uh, ago. And, um, but it wasn't, the purpose of the column really wasn't simply to put a smile on my mom's face or, or give her a, 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 a turn as a New York Times celebrity. It's because I think she has not only some wisdom to share, but life experience behind it um, that is uh, useful for readers. Um, she uh, was a Jewish child born into Nazi-occupied Europe. Um, she uh, came from a family of refugees and was a refugee herself. And I think she knows that uh, bad things happen in life in ways that are more abrupt, unexpected, and severe than I think my generation of you know Gen Xers um, uh, has uh, has been led to expect. And so when I'm telling her that she shouldn't worry too much or she shouldn't uh, overdo the panic, um, she's coming from a different place that understands that sometimes uh, it really is as bad as people fear. And I thought that was worth sharing. Yeah, I think, well, there was two things. I think I think you created a nostalgia and a poignancy, actually, for people who have lost their parents and who don't have their mothers anymore. And I think a lot of people were like, and I'm certainly one of them, was thinking, I love your mom and you can pass that on to her. And I think a lot of, there was a lot of that sentiment because of that, exactly what, you, what you're describing of that generation, my own mother who, you know, you know, lived through, you know, lived through her, the experiences she had nursing, nursing a brother to die from tuberculosis, a disease that's completely gone from all of people's memories now and, and, and other experiences too. But um, the line, I, one of the, one of the pieces that you talked about was what happened to her when she was only three years old. And, uh, and I just, I love that I was, as a, as a, as a very poor Catholic, by the way, but I love the fact that your mother has an appreciation for the Catholic church because of the nun that, basically possibly saved her life when she was three years old. Yes, and she has no context for it. Um, she remembers at some point when she was about th three, she was born in July of 1940. Uh, the Nazis uh, effectively took over northern Italy. They created a puppet regime under Mussolini, but it was a Nazi regime uh, in, in all but name. And somehow she was in the company of nuns. She doesn't know why. And at some point, a young nun, this is just the sort of flash of a memory that one has from that age, um, put her under her skirt or her habit, I should say, uh, vestments. I'm not quite sure what the term of art is. Habit. Her habit. Um, and, and she just remembers that moment. But, you know, her mother did not speak to her so much about what had happened in the war. I think that was very true of that generation. They just wanted to move on. So we're only left to speculate as to the exact circumstances of why the nun would have done that so abruptly. But it, 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 it's um, easy to imagine what, what might have been happening. And, um, and it's very true. My mother has always had a deep uh, residual fondness for the Catholic Church and for the good work that uh, that it does, even though she is uh, very much a Yiddishy mama. <laughs> exactly. Okay, you want to move on to it. But anyway, really, really great column, and I'm really glad you wrote it. I think it yeah. gave a lot of comfort to a lot of people. Yeah. So we want to talk now about the new Woody Allen autobiography, Apropos. 
poll of nothing. You you wrote about it recently, and the the headline is Woody Allen meets the cancel culture. And just to give people background, the book was supposed to come out through Hatchet, uh, I believe, and uh, the staff walked out. Ronan Farrow got involved and threatened to withdraw his. Uh, contract with them and they they caved very quickly um and woody allen's book looked like it wasn't going to be published it has since been published by a smaller independent press uh you can buy it online by the way on your kindle it's it's i just want to say it is a hilarious book he is he is uh, he is one of the great american wits Mm -hmm. i believe um and it's just it just teems with funny lines um, every time, and sometimes it catches you by surprise just how funny it is. And it's I mean he's what he's eighty eighty what eighty eighty four or five I think. I have to say one of the things that struck me was that the writing style. I mean he could be fourteen. He has this beautiful light touch. He writes like a young like a very young person. Um, there's no eighty. Pardon. It's a good book. Uh, I I got a hold of a I guess a samizdat manuscript um before it was actually published so for about a week there it was a really hot item on the on the black market of um forbidden literature in uh uh in our woke culture you might say um and i read it and i thought hey here's a delightful book well written informative as phelan says uh there's a there's a humor uh on every page and um uh I thought it uh, richly deserved to be published, and that is not uh, a judgment on him or his choices in life. It's a foundational commitment to um, not only uh, free speech uh, as a legal matter, but a a culture of free expression, which I think uh, is under some attack these days. so I wrote the column. I heard one of the blessings of being off Twitter is that two days later, a friend of mine said, hey, you were trending on Twitter. And I, I can just imagine uh, why <laughs> that is. But I pay no attention these days. So I'm like a free man. Very good. I think um, we were speaking to someone recently uh, and uh, they were talking about a relative of theirs watching CNN all the time during the pandemic. And since they stopped watching CNN, they'd been a lot more healthy. Uh, you know, that sometimes it's, like it's a bit like Twitter. Just sometimes getting off these platforms is, is healthy. Um, obviously, it, it, it deserves to be published for uh, just that you cannot, you should not allow the mob to, to, to silence an opinion. I mean, Hatchet should know that. But let, let's get to the what 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 the book you know what many people go to in the book is the part about Woody Allen as you say his choices he famously had an affair with his girlfriend's daughter uh, and they and adopted daughter right his girlfriend's adopted daughter correct and they they got they have since got married and have two children of their own and But in the divorce, in the very toxic divorce, Mia Farrow claimed that Woody Allen sexually molested another daughter, Dylan. And uh, that is, you've made your opinion on it very clear. You wrote a a previous column, The Smearing of Woody Allen. Um, I think the book must be published because you cannot come away from reading this book without having serious doubts about the veracity of, of, 
I was going to say Dylan's complaint, but it's really Mia Farrow's complaint more than that. Um, would, would you would you agree with that? That it. That well, look. It, let, it, let me let me just sort of state from the outset: nobody knows yeah. or will know for a moral certainty what in fact occurred. But if you are of the view that there is a more or less open and shut case that he sexually molested his seven-year-old daughter, you owe it to yourself to read his account, not to mention the account of another of his adopted children, uh, Moses Farrow, who was a teenager and was present uh, during the alleged or at the house uh, at the time and place when it allegedly um, uh, occurred. And that's basic to our sense of fairness and our system of justice. Imagine having trials in which the accused are not afforded a right to speak in their own defense. It, it, that would be a, a totalitarian uh, version of, uh, of justice. Um, I think Alan is, is being essentially um, put through something similar in that his reputation is being smeared with what I don't see as a particularly strenuous effort by his critics to listen to his side of the story. In fact, they're trying to suppress his side of the story by insisting that uh, his book not even be published. Now, also to be clear, this is not about censorship. Hachette is a private company. It has to make decisions about what makes financial sense or reputational sense for it to do, but it is a statement about liberal values, and by liberal I mean mean that in the old-fashioned sense, a belief in liberty, tolerance, fair play, uh, respect for the individual, respect for the accused, and so on, where those values are in the 21st century. I find it kind of amazing that Ronan Farrow, uh, Woody's uh, uh, supposedly his son, um, uh, essentially was instrumental in quashing the publication of the book. If anyone should believe in free speech, it should be a journalist like Ronan Farrow, who worked hard to uncover the truth about Harvey Weinstein when there was an effort to suppress that truth. So I'm just simply saying that the Woody Allen story in and of itself is a kerfuffle. It's not a it's not a great story in the scheme of things, but as a symptom of where we are as a culture, I think it's significant. Yeah. See, I remember the time, and, I, and it still is the time, that if, if someone has done something wrong and suddenly says, I'm going to give an hour-long interview, journalists used to go, excellent, because that allow, there's more material out there for them to probe and to find the inconsistencies, uh, and and you know we 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 really I mean that is the great that is the thing when when something like this arises I'm just thinking of other scandals like let's say Prince Andrew, it didn't really come out until he started trying to explain it and then people poked holes in it Prince Andrew and, and the Epstein case uh, you know uh, I, I'm thinking about other cases so it's we we should welcome people speaking at length about accusations they're facing. If if you if you believe that, that they have a case to answer, it just opens more avenues. It allows you to follow up more angles. As a journalist, there are about, I'm thinking there are about five or six things there that I'd like to follow up that are provable. 
For example, I mean, you may not know about this about us, and many people don't. Before we got involved in all this politics, we had this previous life making documentaries about international adoption. Many. Many. And, and many of them were return to sender documentaries where people would send back, would adopt children and send them back. And we, we were shocked when we saw that that's apparently what Mia Farrow had done on two, Twice. Oca- two, two, two occasions. And we, so Caleb, this is an important point, which is that uh, in the book, you've obviously read it, um, Alan makes some fairly serious accusations about uh, Mia Farrow's conduct as a mother. Now, mm-hmm. imagine a situation in which... Uh, the cultural tables were reversed and Mia wanted to rebut those accusations in a lengthy article or a book. And a brave publisher said, we're going to publish Mia's side of the story. And then suddenly Alan used his cultural uh, prestige or influence to quash the book. I think there would be an outcry. She's also entitled to have her say on a matter it's a real public interest. It's a public yeah. interest because you know people are are we're talking about it uh, uh, right now. So there's some accusations that almost amount to child abuse. Uh, yes. Mia um, yeah. Farrell. I don't know whether they're true, but they're yeah. there, and she ought to have an equal right to defend herself. And that was the principle I was standing for, not whether who's right or wrong in yeah. the Wood Mia uh, debate. Well, as journalists, by the way, they could ask her, did you ever adopt children? And when you didn't like them, send them back. Right? You know, you know uh, so and, that and, is in the book. And, and my jaw dropped. I mean, the idea that a human being is like uh, an item from Amazon that you uh, are unhappy with. Uh, I found that very uh, disconcerting. Unfor- uh, unfortunately, we didn't find it at all surprising because we've done many stories involving people doing exactly that. It's a, it's a lot more it, common. It's a lot more common than you think. Yeah. But it was. But it's interesting that it's there, and it's interesting that Maya Farrow is keeping very quiet. I mean, I, if it was me and someone accused me of something so despicable, so evil, I'd feel compelled to come out and say, "Well, I've never sent a child back." You know what I mean? I think you'd need to. You'd need to do that. And it's not just that. It's not him just saying it. Obviously, he has Moses Farrow. That essay that you've um, referred to is extraordinary. You know, and also the thing about Thaddeus, the child Thaddeus, who had the problem with with the legs, and that she actually quite liked putting on the metal. Um, the metal kind of braces for the cameras, and then the child was able to wear a much more, much more discreet plastic kind of brace under his trousers the rest of the time. And then you find out that two of the children committed suicide. I mean, these are stories, no one knows this. I mean, I don't believe this is n- common knowledge at all. So I, I recommend people to read this book. Yeah. It was funny, I tried to recommend it to some to some friends, and when I mentioned it, they just went completely silent. Um, <laughs> Because everyone has made their mind up. I'm bizarre about the, the present moment, which is that in a free society or an ostensibly free society, so many people are just afraid to speak their minds. Um, and, it, you know, people, a number of people said, it was so courageous of you to write a column about Woody Allen. <laughs> no, not really. I mean, you know, courage, are, courage is uh, doctors uh, uh, at uh, New York City hospitals uh, dealing yeah. with uh, the pandemic. I mean, I can think of many instances of courage, but m- my choosing to write about Woody Allen, I don't think is one of them. But I fear that there is such a kind of a, a so much social pressure to conform 
with certain, you know, quote, uh, verities uh, on yeah. one issue after another that, uh, I mean, I wouldn't call it courage, but it takes a certain amount of chutzpah, if you will, uh, to write about it. And I think that that kind of chutzpah is actually essential to the survival of liberal democracy. I mean, liberal democracy does not survive by people saying yes to things. It yes. survives by people saying no to things. Yes. I mean, Rosa Parks was a person who said no, right? The people at the Stonewall Inn said no. Uh, any kind of significant social advance that you can think of or scientific advance from Galileo to Darwin and so on comes not from the yes sayers, but from the naysayers. And one of the reasons we have a liberal democracy is to allow those naysayers not only to 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 be heard, but even to sometimes be celebrated as as the kind of contrary voices that the rest of society needs to uh, pay attention to. Would would I be right in saying though that most of that saying no is coming from a, a sliver of the right, that that there's not much of it on the left, and there's not much of it on the right either. But is it maybe I'm just maybe it's just the bubble I'm in, but I I find that a lot of this skepticism where it should be and and saying no and asking questions there's, there's a sliver of the right now or maybe i'm am i in the bubble okay i think it depends where you look right um i think there's no question there's a tremendous amount of pressure uh political pressure to conform in places like college campuses which lean left um certain parts of the media that lean left but ask yourself and i'm just pushing back a little bit of, uh, uh, at the premise of your question, why was George Will booted from Fox News as a commentator? I mean, George Will is the most um, respected, venerated, honored, uh, conservative political columnist, not only of my generation, but of my parents' generation. And yet, because he took uh, an anti-Trump stance, uh, he was no longer welcome on the premier conservative news channel in America. I think that's also a dispiriting sign of the times. I mean, I'm I'm constantly flabbergasted by the way in which I'm described by people like Tucker Carlson as a left winger. Um, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, wow, uh, we've really moved some distance on the right if a guy like me is a left winger. That would certainly come as news to the readers of the New York Times who think I'm yes. to the right of the till of the Hun. Let, let's just wrap up, actually. Thank you very much. But I, I just wanted to ask you about the coronavirus. You talked about the mad cow scare. You talked about all these scares that came along and mad cow's disease You know, was predicted to kill half a million people. It ended up in Britain. It ended up killing 373 people. And as you but, the, but the herd, the complete uh, cattle herd in the in the UK was was killed. Was slaughtered. Was you slaughtered. know, massive economic disruption. It's hard to know, and I have no answer, and I don't know if you have an answer. Do you think we're going to? Is this real, or is it mad cows disease? Is it? You know, what 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 what's the proper response here? How skeptical should we be? Some scares are real. Uh, you know, in I remember in 1983 as a little boy, um, news of a virus going around uh, that was fatal in the gay community. That was not some idle scare. Uh, HIV AIDS is responsible for millions of deaths uh, worldwide. And um, I think this pandemic should not be treated as some kind of hoax in any way. It is 
dreadfully real. It is not the flu. Uh, it is something else. We are trying to come to grips with uh, a new reality, and I try to be mindful of the available, reputable uh, evidence, um, which tells us that uh, unchecked, this could be awfully serious. That doesn't mean that we have to click off our brains and not ask a series of questions about the right trade-offs between utmost precaution and precaution that tips us over into a new set of problems. You sometimes hear it said that the, the, the dilemma is between lives and the economy. I don't think that's the real dilemma. The dilemma is between uh, the, the lives we risk by not imposing the strictest uh, social distancing measures during the pandemic versus lives we might also risk if we tip into a global depression and people die of loneliness, suicide, desperation, uh, uh, diseases that uh, lack of medical care and, uh, uh, and so on. So I think all of these things have to be taken sort of separately and, and in their turn. And I'm very uh, reluctant to um, sort of put them in the same basket of, you know, um, crazy liberals screaming about the end of the world, you know, uh, and, and, and dismiss it. Because I, I just think that the important thing in life is not to switch off your brains. You know, my own thinking on global warming is different than what it was uh, uh, 10 years ago. I try, as John Maynard Keynes, not my favorite economist said, you know, when, when the facts change, so do my opinions. I'm not sure Keynes said that, but it's usually attributed <laughs> to him. Yeah. Um, and, and we're trying to grapple with this, you know, in, a, in an intelligent way. You know, people, one of the things that I think is so toxic about our culture today is that there's a kind of like a Miranda rule that now applies to uh, everything we say, which is that anything you say can and will be held against you in the court of public opinion. So if I wrote a column 10, 15 years ago making some sort of remark about some sort of situation, uh, because all of it is available on the internet and people who are trolls can spend hours of their time finding out that Brett Stevens in 2006 said X and now he thinks Y. What does that prove? I'm just trying, like all of my fellow commentators, to provide an independent, intelligent and skeptical voice on the great events of our time. I'm not pretending to be anything more than that. And the lack or the inability of our critics to see what we're trying to do as people living in time, thinking through the dilemmas of our day, is I think a sign of kind of a, 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 a declining capacity for humane and intelligent thought. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, you know, so that's my message. Um, uh, I could be wrong about the pandemic. Um, I'm a reasonably nice person who loves his mother and loves his wife and kids and is just trying to think through and think aloud along with the rest of you. Yeah. Well, thank you. Well, well, I thank suppose you. I, we've run well over time here, but I suppose I can't let you go without uh, uh, talking about uh, the President Trump. Um, you yeah. have been, you were uh, initially very much against President Trump as a candidate. Um, and uh, predicted that Hillary Clinton would win. And we, we were recently at a, at a talk you gave in New York uh, where you said you know, that you want to work out why you got that wrong and 
how you're maybe I'm misquoting you, but why you got it wrong and what you what you can learn from that. I detected for a little while a softening on the president, uh, 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 and then I've noticed a, a lack of softening in, in recent columns. So wh- where are you now, and uh, you know what what do you think? How do you think he's handling the pandemic? But how, but also where are you in in overall on, on the president? Well, I think the guy's unfit to be president. Um, he is the president, and uh, he will do things from time to time that I agree with. And I think that it would be idiotic just because I don't like the man personally and wish he hadn't become president to simply jerk the knee at everything that he does and find a rationale for explaining that it's awful and stupid and evil and, and so on. And I took some positions not at the journal, but at the New York Times that did not endear me to readers. I supported withdrawing from the Iran deal, the JCPOA. I supported Brett Kavanaugh's uh, nomination, uh, said said all of this. I supported the uh, assassination of Qasem Soleimani. You know, I'm trying to sort of keep my brain on and and note that um, Trump will do things that I, I, I agree with. But let me say this too. There are a whole series of conservative principles that I've stuck to that the rest of the conservative world hasn't. And when I was coming up in the Reagan era, there was an understanding that this country generally benefited from free trade and immigration. Immigrants like my mom or immigrants like you guys, you yeah. know, um, uh, and, and from many other, uh, many other places. That's been taken out of the, uh, the list of sort of conservative uh, priorities. I've always believed in the importance of internationalism, of organizations like NATO, in the belief in the defense of the free world and uh, inveterate American moral and strategic opposition to dictatorships. So when I see Trump cozying up to Kim Jong-un, truly the worst tyrant in the world and offering special help to North Korea during the pandemic, I really have to ask myself, you know, what is that all about? And the last point that I'll make is, you know, a president is president of all the country. And Trump has chosen to be president of his 47, 48% of the country. And it's in times like this pandemic where you really see the shortcomings of that. Remember after 9-11, George W. Bush was hugely divisive. He barely won the election after the contested uh, ballots in Florida. And yet after 9-11, there was enough moral stock in the presidency that the country rallied behind it, 93 or something percent support. And he had the moral authority of the president, at least in that emergency, to make Americans stand up and come together. And I think what you're seeing now with Trump, yes, his approvals have gone up a little bit, but he's still under 50. Unable to do that is the result of that diminished stock of moral authority that comes when you call your fellow Americans human scum or people who hate the United States or the enemies of the people and so on. And I'm alert to that that part of the presidency, which isn't just a matter of executing policy, but it's a matter of symbolizing and embodying the best aspects of the nation. Um, You know, I have lots of friends with whom I disagree. They're liberals, they're Democrats. And they, you know, often work at the New York Times, but I don't see them as enemies of the people. Um, and I wish we had a president who had that stock of moral capital. I think it's of utmost importance in a, in, in a president. 
And if I happen to agree with that person, so much the better. I mean, I, we, we also, when we became conservatives, I think we were all into free trade and, 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 and free immigration, et cetera, or more immigration. And those were, as you say, those were the, the main, they were one of the main points of, of being a conservative. But I, I think no one ever told us that the free trade that we thought we were celebrating wasn't really free trade. It was based on treaties where you were allowed quotas for that and tariffs for this. And it, it wasn't, it was more like a deal rather than, it wasn't like you sell me whatever you want, I'll sell you whatever I want. And I, I, think that Trump has brought me to look again at what I think I'm in favor I'm in favor of free trade but the, I'm not sure what what he is against was free trade and it, it, how free can trade be if you are hobbling your industry here with regulation taxes uh, environmental regulations that are not being enforced in other countries is, is that free is that, or is it fair and I don't want, I hate that word fair by the way. Well, look, we also, I mean, these words are used, we talk about being in a free society, but we're in a society that has all kinds of unfreedoms, right? Yes. It's a term, it's a term that we use, uh, uh, and, and, and a, a goal which we approximate. Um, but there's no question that there is an idea that open, more open trade, freer trade, lower tariffs, no uh, barriers for farmers or steel makers and so on, is generally a good idea um, economically. And I would argue that uh, that remains uh, the case. The laws of economics have not been uh, reinvented in the past uh, 10 years. And I feel that even more strongly about uh, immigration. You know, people say, well, immigration is different today because the immigrants are coming from Latin America or, um, or you know, not from Europe. But let's be honest, 150 years ago, there was a political party in this country dedicated to getting rid of you guys, uh, Irish Catholics, right? I mean, and look how magnificently enriched this country is by all of you, just as it was enriched by another population that wasn't so popular, Jews coming from Eastern Europe, speaking incomprehensible Yiddish. Um, I agree. Within a generation or so, we're, we're populating the great institutions of, of American academic life and so on. And I, I have I have this unshakable Lincoln-esque faith that uh, in a generation or two, we will be looking at the children of immigrants from Honduras or Ecuador or Mexico, and we will be saying, boy, we, we said such terrible things about their ancestors. But, you know, I, I feel this strongly every time I'm in a ballroom and I give a speech and, you know, they're the, the waiters or the busboys who are cleaning up, clean, cleaning up or looking after the people. And I say to the audience in that in, in, in those ballrooms, I say, look at those people. Those are your grandparents. My grandmother was a seamstress. My great-grandfather was a carpenter. And that's my foundational belief in what the promise of this country is about. We're running totally over time. I just wanted to say, I think there is a difference today, though. That, and it's a wider question. Can you have open immigration with a welfare state? Um, well, it beats you know, uh, a welfare state with no immigration where you have zero population growth. Well, that, that's, you know, then you have legal immigration. Uh, and, and you know, maybe there are ways around this. Let's, you know, we're, we're totally out. That's for another day. Yes. Um, We've covered a lot of We've covered a lot here. of things exactly. here. Um, and when I say earlier, when you talked about incomprehensible Yiddish, I, I was agreeing to that, not to 
keeping uh, Jews out. But uh, when I said I agree, uh, but we we love Yiddish, by the way. We're we're yes. we're um, yes. I, I I I love Gaelic. I wish I could understand what the hell it it it, it sounds beautiful. <laughs> it, it, and it is, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. you're not going to learn it from us either, by the yes. way. Yeah. Oh, well, every time I've been in Ireland, I think, oh, what a, what an intriguing language that I will never have time to learn. But it yeah. but it is so, a very very beautiful language. Well, Brett, okay. thank you so uh, much, much for your time today, uh, Brett. We really appreciate it. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Bye. Well. That was quite an interview, a lot to unpack there. I wish I could have talked to him for another hour or for, I could have just kept talking. Um, he's very interesting and, you know, he obviously always tries to be an independent thinker. And I agree with a lot of what he says, disagree with some of it. But I think funny, it's all, a lot of it's about terminology. And I mean, uh, listen, we'll have him back maybe to discuss pres so. President Trump in more detail uh, later on in the year. But we just say to everyone, um, honestly, you know, if you're um, stuck at home and all of that, buy the Apropos of Nothing by Woody Allen on Kindle. Um, it's really a great read. My God, the guy is funny. It's really funny. It's written like he's a 12-year-old. He's got a very light touch in the, in the man is in his 80s. It's, it's really good. But I think it's particularly interesting to give you an insight into Ma Mia Farrow. And if you have already decided that you've condemned Woody Allen, I would say you ought to read this book. Um, it might um, open some questions questions up to you that that I think need to be answered but actually funny enough I'm not sure I focused enough on the interview in the interview on just how funny the book is as you yeah. said so don't don't think it's all Mia Farrow and miscarriage of justice and Dreyfus and Jacques and all that it's not it's a it's a very funny uh, description of his life his very interesting life at 18 he at 18 when he was at high school he was writing jokes for 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 the top personalities of the day, making $40 a week whilst being at high school. Uh, making, making, I think he was making, so when he was still in high school, he was making three times what his parents' combined salary was yes. just by writing jokes. He, it's, a great, it's a great book. It's a great read. High, highly recommended. Very funny. And then, you know, then it twists from being a very funny book into being this extraordinary expose of one woman's um, crusade to destroy his life and actually her behavior as an as a woman who adopted children from internationally is very sobering it's something that we know a lot about because we made documentaries about the subject in the past but i think you know you get yourself an amazing education there but we're we're coming kind of to the end of the show and i just wanted to talk about a couple of other things that are that that i mentioned at the beginning of the show so one is that we've had new draconian measures um imposed on us here that started on friday and i have to say I nearly burst last last Friday. Started last Friday. I nearly burst into tears. Up until then, I was kind of weathering this um, imp imposition on our our rights quite well. Actually, it didn't bother me really because we're working away. We're still in the house quite a we're lot. Busier than ever. We're we're working harder than normally actually because, because normally we'd normally have Magda here. And because we now have the daily virus. We, so just to let you know, if you're watching this as normal uh, uh, when it comes out every Wednesday and you people watch it, oh, I know all over the weekend, we do do a shorter version every day now. Uh, looking at the virus, all the craziness, the and madness, the and the updates. Yeah, so be sure to tune in there. And the advice, one piece of advice then is, um, this is one time when you really realise, by the way, how um, technology is very helpful. But before I get into that, the, dr the big draconian change that's happened here is that the beaches have been closed. 25 miles of beaches here in LA County. Apparently, um, a surfer was fined in Manhattan Beach, $1,000 for going surfing. Um, that's, so quite a, that's quite a bit of social distancing. And, uh, you know, I, I think if, if surfing isn't social distancing, I'm not sure really what is. But 
you know, they've, they've said we can't go on the beaches, we can't go on the bicycle path, and we can't go on the boardwalk, which forces people, even the population that, you, that live on the beach, that live by the beach, or this small, pop, well, not that small population, but a population, instead of walking on the beach where there's actually a lot of space, we're now forced to walk on the roads or run on the roads and on the pavements, right. which are either non-existent or very, very crowded. So, and they've closed the canals. And if you want to hear more about the beaches, look at our Daily Virus podcast from Monday, the uh, Monday, the March, the 30th. Yeah, we talk a lot about it. And also, I mean, we don't want to go over it again. You'll hear it all. But they are not clearing the homeless from the beach. So there's thousands of homeless living close together and they're super spreaders. They would have compromised immune systems. But we don't want to go over that again. It's all on the Monday version of the Daily Virus under the Anon Film Scoop. So just go wherever you watch, the, wherever you listen to the Anon Film Scoop. It's an audio podcast. Just look for the Daily Virus Monday, March the 30th and hear more about this. Yeah, and then, you know, one of the things I think that's been that's been kind of instructive is I think a lot of us are learning about how much how much entertainment there is available, how much help there is available by using the internet and by using technology. And one thing that we've discovered and literally have been using over the last week is Zoom. We're not getting paid by Zoom, but you know what? I'm very happy to do an advertisement for them. It's free if you talk to... So you can talk to a group. The great thing about it is, unlike Skype or unlike WhatsApp, you can talk to a group of people and it's just fabulous. So I was able to speak to my cousins in England and my cousins in Ireland and we were all in the same conversation. I was also able to have like a virtual cocktail party with the girlfriends from the from from Los Angeles who you know can't meet up and you end up with like six screens and everyone gets to chat people can see each other and it's it's really really great so zoom.com it's very easy to use actually it's very very user friendly I would definitely highly recommend that the other thing that was in the news that I thought was a, a good story was and it had stri- it had struck me and we didn't have time and I didn't have time to write it but actually the New York Post beat me to it um, Kristen Fleming writing in the New York Post talks about the headline was Deborah Burks is the maternal fashion icon America, America needs right now. Could not agree more. I, there's something, obviously, uh, Deborah Burks, who's the doctor who is uh, heading up the, the coronavirus task force. You see her every day. You see her every day at the press conference. Just, I, I'll quickly give her CV because I think it's worth remembering. The 63-year-old Pennsylvanian native was an army physician who was on the front lines of fighting the HIV AIDS epidemic. She was the director of the U- U.S. military HIV research program at Walter Reed Army Institute of Research and then the director of the Center for Disease Control and Prevention's Division of Global Global HIV AIDS. In 2014, she was nominated by President Obama to serve as the U.S. Global AIDS Coordinator. In late February, Mike Pence came calling. And what I think is, and this, and I remember when I thought at first, I thought, oh God, I'm so shallow. But you know what? I'm not because other people are thinking the same thing. Deborah Burks arrives to the press conference pretty much. She's pretty much there every day. You know, you can imagine that prior to that press conference, there's been a ton of talks going on between everyone. And during the day that she's obviously in touch with all these doctors, getting all this information and all this data and trying to advise the president on what's the best thing to do next. And here she appears at every press conference with the hair perfection and with a, a different what seems to me certainly to be a different outfit every day and a beautiful scarf. And you know what? There's nothing shallow in the fact that she puts the time into that. And I think it's incredibly reassuring because when everyone is feeling chaotic and hysterical, it's very nice to be spoken to by a woman who is super calm, obviously highly, highly um, 
uh, trained and an expert in incommunicable diseases and that she has the wherewithal and the time and the energy and the mental health to be able to put herself together as beautifully as she does and she just is gorgeous I mean I'm just trying to think of one of the you know as they say through the sea this is what the New York uh, Post wrote which I thought was fabulous through the sea of men in standard issue stodgy business suits and striped ties in primary colours steps forward a 60-ish blonde woman who looked like who looks like Rennie Wellsegger might you know might might play her in a future blockbuster and I swear when I saw her the first time I thought this is a movie because this woman has such a heroic past with the AIDS community with fighting the AIDS epidemic um, and here she is in the starring role and god is she stylish and I think there's something to be said you know, it's the kind of thing that your parents, you know, my parents would have said, you know, d- you know, and dress up anyway. And by the way, yesterday when I was having the cocktail party on Zoom with my girlfriends, one of them said, it was so funny because people were saying, what are you doing? What? One girl said, very important to keep wearing clothes with zippers and buttons. I thought that was fabulous because, of course, people are inclined to suddenly get into leisure wear. But uh, but anyway, Dr. Burks is, is unbelievable. You know, during uncertain times, it might seem frivolous to focus on or even mention anything aesthetic like clothing, but it's quietly important. This is again from the New York Post. Sending us subliminal messages of confidence and capability. In every briefing since the Rose Garden appearance, Burks has brought her special brand of sartorial serenity and strength to the country. I just love that. And then we want to get to your messages. Yeah, so it's very important. Please keep sending us comments on the Apple podcast platform. We, we want as many ratings there as possible, please. And we read all the messages. And then we also read all the messages on YouTube. So please keep them coming. And here's a few from, from YouTube. So Der, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to murder your name now, Dave. This is Dave Perchaluk. Per- yeah. per- this is in response, and he's and, and he's writing from Alberta, Canada, and we're basically in response to the the what we talked about with by global warming. Yes, where I where I was saying, you know, surely global warming would make somewhere feel better. It can't all be damaging to everywhere on the planet at the same time. Surely there must be somewhere where the weather's not perfect, where a little bit of whatever is in climate change would help. And so he says, great video, keep it up. I'm in Alberta, Canada, and would love if it warmed two degrees, considering I have five to six months of snow and three to four months of summer. I would be extremely happy to see a longer growing season and summer. Even every Canadian would. People forget how much we complain as a society about winter's cold and length, but heaven forbid we have climate change and it might possibly warm. Thank you so much for that. And and also, Alana Bush, thank you very much for writing. And uh, Alana's writing about the awful song imagine and she and she basically says uh, she yeah, she talks song. what an awful song it is but then she goes on to talk about something else you know she t- says we don't have to imagine the nuremberg laws in nazi germany stripped the jews of their professions and their possessions <laughs> homes bank accounts art etc they packed one suitcase and moved into very overcrowded ghettos sharing apartments Four to five families, disease, typhoid, diphtheria, TB, etc. were rampant, also starvation. What would you pack in that suitcase? Those who survived the Holocaust didn't get their possessions back. We are not disembodied ghosts or spiritless robots. We are both spiritual and material. There are many countries today like North Korea, Korea, rural China, etc., whose citizens suffer from despotic deprivation. And just to that, thank you for writing that, Alana. And by the way, I've just finished reading... Uh, night 
by um, Ellie Vessel, the uh, Romanian um, Holocaust survivor from, from that, that, that survived Auschwitz. Um, and I'll tell you one thing, it certainly sobered me up to not complaining at all. We have food, we have shelter, we have electricity, we have internet, we have each other. Um, we're able to communicate with each other, even if it's by, through technology. Um, so thanks a million for reminding us of that, Alana. Well, yeah, but uh, you know, I don't think John Lennon wasn't talking about economic deprivation. John Lennon, imagine no possessions. And I think what Alana was saying there was, we've had that. You know, the Jews, all their possessions were taken off the Jews. Yeah. All their possessions were, were taken off the North Koreans. We don't have to imagine that. And they are miserable. They are, they are, they are, it is a terrible way to live. And as she says, we are both spiritual and material people. And one feeds off the other. Yeah. There will be no spirituality. There will be no imagining. You can't imagine if you have no possessions, actually. Yeah. And then we have Greg Dawson. Thanks a million, Greg, for writing. And on film, I'm a huge fan. Thank you, Greg. The rumours that I forcibly took some pro-choice friends to see Gosnell are unfounded. I merely suggested very strongly that they see it. They're no longer pro-choice. Um, to my point, your podcast is great. Good video production, lighting, etc. But for God's sake, oh yes, but for God's sake, buy a couple of nice microphones and stands so you don't need to pass it back and forth. So the reason we're doing this is because we do not have Magda at the moment and we are we reduced. We, we have the microphones, but we don't know how to use the soundboard on our own. So we're using the iPhone and we can, there's only one jack that allows one microphone and we can't get a splitter apparently for the iPhone. But if you found one, please let yeah. us know. If anyone out there knows a splitter for the iPhone microphone, please let us know. Um, I think and even if it does exist, it'll be hard to get it in the current crisis. So we're, we're stuck with one microphone. We do, have, we do have wonderful microphones here. Look at that. But there's a, they're attached to a soundboard that we need someone to work. And so we just this is a, an easier way of talking and getting And it's, it's good quality. It just does look a bit strange. Constantly handing the microphone over. And sitting very, very close together. More close together than we would be really comfortable with normally. Um, thank you so much for tuning in again. Um, if you want to support our work, please um, donate at the unreportedstoriesociety.com. Unreportedstoriesociety.com. We appreciate um, donations. Um, it's and it's, it's a 501c3, so you get a tax, a tax deduction. And listen to The Daily Virus. We're going to do updates. It's very short updates every day, 15 to 20 minutes, um, just commenting on the latest madness, giving some advice. And, and don't and forget to leave comments on the Apple podcast format or on YouTube. So thank you. <laughs> See you next time. Bye. 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 Bye.